Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Laura. Thank you for joining me on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, I am delighted that we've sat down and had a conversation. I think you and I have exchanged messages on social media, just like a lot of us are doing here in the from the back end of this pandemic. We hope it's the back end of this pandemic. Um, we like to uh, jump in with a big idea or bold opinion. You've per- perhaps got something like that for us. But before we do that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thanks for having me today, Jason. This is great. I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you. Uh, I am the Executive Director of Development at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School, which is the law school at the University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia. 
Um, I've been here for about 12 years. Um, I started off as the assistant director of annual giving, having just left a few-year career as an attorney. And so I went from the world of child welfare litigation to annual giving um, and have since uh, sort of worked my way all around the table in terms of fundraising position to where I am now. And I oversee our entire development operation here, um, which includes annual giving, planned giving, major gifts and principal gifts. I have not talked to anyone in higher education uh, in quite some time. So as we're, um, um, as we're sort of like, like to think that we're sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel on this pandemic, sort of what's the, what's sort of the tone in the feel on, you know, in a shop like yours, what, what's your thoughts on that? I think that, you know, we're partially hybrid. So um, most of our staff is here three to four days a week. Um, our students, however, are here full time and we are yep. embedded in the law school. So our office is just upstairs. I can hear students outside the door right now, actually right. switching classes. Um, okay. So I think the benefit of having students back is that it has really helped us energy wise. So I think, um, you know, having students on campus and seeing the campus come back to life after a year of sort of minimal student presence um, has been energizing in a way um, for many of us. So I think the vibe here is hopeful. And um, we are we have the benefit of having an older student population than the undergrads. So I think, you know, there's not a lot of uh, breaking of the rules or, you know, we, we have not had a lot of in-building transmission. We haven't had any in-building transmission of COVID. Um, so I think it feels safe and it feels like everyone's really happy to be back. Hey, are you back on the road? Are people, are we doing donor visits or are we still doing a lot of Zoom? Trying to be back right, on the road, right, I would say. Right, right. Um I actually had a disastrous first day back on the road that I'm happy to talk about. But um, <laughs> oh, let's hear about that. Yeah, let's warm up the conversation with a disastrous. That's sure. The, so I mean, I wouldn't say you, disastrous. Let's, let's see if you can beat my disastrous <laughs> encounter in the uh, in the um, Atlanta airport about six weeks ago. Let's see. Let's. Oh see. no, I don't. See I don't think can I can. Go ahead. I don't think ahead. I can. So <laughs> the majority of our alumni are, of course, in New York City. So yeah. Um, I travel there. Well, before pan pre pandemic, I traveled there, you know, once a week or so. Um, and yeah. so I attempted to reproduce that trip, um, heading up on the train on the Amtrak from Philadelphia to New York. And my, I had meetings scheduled in the morning. And of course, you know, now, especially for those of us who are parents, travel is a little bit more dodgy than ever because we're also managing childcare issues and picking children up from school and getting them to the many activities that we've overscheduled because they didn't have any last year. So I had right. carefully scheduled this day to be able to get up there and back in time to pick up at least one child for an after school activity. And I, uh, my train broke down, I think three times between okay. Philadelphia and Trenton. Um, and eventually they booted us off the train in um, in Princeton Junction and told us right. that um, we should just catch the next one, which, right. of course, was about 45 minutes behind. So by the time I got to New York, the meetings that I had scheduled had already that those that time had already passed and 
my donors were not available for the, you know, otherwise in the, in that day. So I had a lovely lunch by myself in Hudson Yards and saw the new train hall at Penn Station and got on a train and came home. Right. <laughs> I don't think that beats Atlanta, but now I want to hear that. Story. Yeah, I, I just saw i I was doing a I was doing a client visit, and this was about this was about eight weeks ago. And the system, you could tell that the system at, at the Atlanta airport was sort of just warming up, and so the train the the people mover system, whatever that system's called, um, shut down, uh, you know, literally just sort of shut down. And so we had to literally crawl ourselves out of the uh, tunnel and get off. Um, and then of course the, you could tell also the rental car system was totally backed up. They had, you know, you could tell that there were way too many people that wanted cars and they had too few cars ready to go. And so it just getting out of the Atlanta airport. Um, and then I came back three days later and this, it was similarly sort of just, it, it was just one of this very obvious sort of systems snafus that the, you know, a big operation like the Atlanta airport, which is probably, you know, back into high, high volume activity now, um, they were not ready for. Um, but your story, I got to tell you, Laura. So I, when I was, when I was raising money in DC, I remember that same train trip from D because we used to do it all the time as well. We we'd hop on the Amtrak and we'd go up to New York and we'd do whatever we were doing, perhaps sometimes spend the night. And I do remember though sometimes occasional um, you know, the trains would get you know, they would stop, they would break down, whatever. Um and uh and it and, and where you stopped, where where you had to get off at really mattered, um, depending on whether you got back in time. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, Laura, we <laughs> ask our guests to come on with a big idea, bold opinion. We don't necessarily know what that big idea is. Big idea is going to be. What do you got for us today? Well, I mean, we've already sort of touched on it, and I think my bold opinion is that uh, remote work might not be the best bet for the work that we do, um, at, at least in the higher ed space. Um, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit already, Jason. So um, I think, you know, I think that the the university campus still remains a sort of sacred space that is important to the students because the students are largely interested in being back on campus to learn, yeah. um, especially at a place like Penn. I think that especially your donors, if they're alums, hold it in very high regard and often want to come back to it as a, as a place. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important for us as fundraisers to also be connected to the things that mean the most to our donors. And I also think that very often we as fundraisers become, you know, incredibly siloed. And the more we can collaborate with each other, especially at a large institution where you're, you know, you may be partnering with people at a whole different school from yours, um, that it's really important for us to have some FaceTime in the office, on campus. It doesn't have to be five days a week. Um, it wasn't five days a week before the pandemic, assuming right, we were all right. on the road. Um, yeah. But I think I'm seeing folks struggle with an entirely remote um, workspace in this current environment. Yeah, I think I have mixed feelings about it too. I, I think I want to advocate for it because I remember my own sort of experiences as a major gifts officer and I had this one boss 
who will remain nameless, who did expect that, you know, you're on the road for three or four days. Literally, you go to the West Coast, for example, and you come back and you still expected to sort of show up in the office on Friday. It's, it's kind of that dynamic. But I think that's less about whether you're re- working remotely or not and more a sensitivity and awareness to what your employee just did. Right. And what your expectations are. Um I think, Laura, my primary concern when it comes to this remote work stuff, this remote work conversation is really whether our bosses, whether our bosses are sort of up to the task and whether they have the awareness, whether they have sufficient awareness of what the work is to be in the field, whatever the field work is, to sort of know that it's getting done. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with you. And I think... um, you know, I think I'm in the position at Penn where I'm both a frontline fundraiser and managing a full team of uh, yeah. frontline fundraisers. So yeah. I'm I'm doing the work and overseeing the work, which makes the perspective a, a little bit easier. But I think, I mean, I I think there's a real key in how you approach this conversation. I think it has to be from a place of trust in your staff. There has to be an understanding that you want them in the office for their own professional development and growth and for the team's well-being, not because of a lack of trust that they're actually doing the work no matter where they are. Um, And I think some employers struggle with that, with, with making it clear that this is about you know, team collaboration and happiness and being connected to the work and not about a distrust in them. So where does it work? Well, so let's sort of, let's, let's sort of, uh, I don't know what the word is. I, I'm, I'm lost for the word, but let's sort of, let's sort of take the argument on both sides. So let's, let's take the argument that remote work is not right for it. So how do we, if we are going to Laura return to the office how are we in this post-pandemic sort of world? We've now worked in our home offices for a year and a half. Quite frankly, we weren't on the road. That that That's part of what I find to be a little precarious, too, is that just by calling it remote doesn't necessarily mean you're in front of the donors. And my advoc- I'm always advocating what, by whatever definition. I want you actually in front of the donors. So I don't know that working at your home office is necessarily going to get you in front of the donor any faster. So... So what in your mind is the, what are sort of the, those first couple of things that come to mind that you sort of say, this is what we don't want to lose. This is why we want to come back to the office. Yeah. I mean, I think you don't want to lose the team atmosphere, which I think is really important. I, I, I think development officers are sometimes seen as very independent entities because we travel so much by ourselves yeah. or with maybe yeah. one other person, but I really yeah. rely on my team to be inspirational and to sort of talk through, um, you know, donors or other projects. So I think, um, you know, you don't want to lose the team atmosphere and the opportunity to sort of collaborate with each other. Um, You don't want to lose the connection, especially in higher ed or somewhere where that's very place centric. Um, You don't want to lose the connection to what's going on every day in the space that your donors are giving to. Um, And, I just think there's a, but I do think you sort of have to have a certain level of empathy um, in each person's sort of personal situation. Um, Yeah, I have folks on my team who don't have kids. I have folks who do. I have people who are taking care of other relatives or who have other commitments. And I think however you return to work, it has to be done in a way that is 
really flexible and very understanding of the sort of ongoing, you know, I don't want to say struggles, but sort of ongoing challenges that we're all facing in returning to the office if we need to. You know, I've been been doing some writing, Laura, I've been doing some writing about the fact that I think fundraising has lost what I consider to be sort of its ability, its its appreciation for place. I think a lot of fundraising gets done in, uh, this is the language I'm I think a lot of fundraising gets done in spaces, but not places. And I think in some ways that's kind of what you're getting at. In, in higher education campuses, for example, I mean, I teach over the local college and I totally appreciate we're just a, you know, we're a simple, small liberal arts college in central Pennsylvania. And I just love walking across campus. There's just something about sort of being in that space. And I think about it from a fundraising standpoint, if I, I was just over there this morning, I'll be over there this evening. Just walking through campus, I have to think that um, uh, I have to think that sort of being on campus, even sort of bumping into, talking with my colleagues, perhaps obviously talking to the students in the classroom, sort of makes for a better story um, and sort of keeps me more rooted. Um, is that is that part of what you're thinking? Is that is that yes. if we if we just sort of all exist in our spaces, whatever virtual spaces we they are, are we going to lose that sort of place place based sort of um, meaning that you know we we derive a lot of meaning and fundraising is a lot about meaning and where those places are. You follow what I'm saying? I completely agree. I mean, what you said about walking across campus is very real, and I. So I park in a garage campus that is clear across campus from where my office is. And um, that's new this year. And I have, but I've had the opportunity to walk through the heart of campus every morning to get to my, every morning that I'm here um, to get to my office. And so I walk down the sort of most infamous path in at Penn called Locust Walk. And it is almost always teeming with students. And there's a real energy there that you can't get from being in your home office. And, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, capital projects happening at at Penn right now, which is something our donors are incredibly interested in hearing about. So being able to walk past those things and then, you know, get on a Zoom even with a donor later in the day and say, oh, you know, I walked past the new pavilion today and it it looks like it's really coming along is really... I think, you know, and I think they like hearing that I'm here and that I'm, you know, observing things and being able to bring them news from campus that I wouldn't be able to do from my home office across town. Um, So I think it's I think it is important in spaces like higher ed to be able to to sort of, you know, absorb what's happening around campus and have that be inspirational to your work. But does that beg the question, too? And, and again, this is some of the stuff that I'm writing about in the new book. Does that also beg the question, too, that perhaps we need to interrogate and sort of revisit some of our own fundraising strategies? Because if you want to be in place, perhaps our donors do, too. Because I would argue, I would venture to say and argue that, like, for example, if I if I really enjoy that walk across campus, I'm guessing that my donors probably enjoy it too. So are we supposed to, is, is this, is this whole conversation useful in order to sort of stir up 
the question of, okay, if it's meaning for you and I, if it's meaningful for you and I on the receiving side, on the fundraising side, should we also factor that logic into the giving side and say, okay, maybe we need to design more of our fundraising to be in these meaningful places? Yes. I mean, I think that's why a lot of institutions, including mine, would say that uh, Reunion is one of their biggest fundraisers. Um, and, <laughs> right, and I think yeah. it's because people come back and there's a there's a certain warm and fuzziness that you get from um, returning to a place that means a lot to you. And, you know, I spent from March 2020 to, I don't know, March or April 2021 seeing donors exclusively on Zoom. My first two in-person visits when the restrictions were lifted were walks across campus with donors. And yeah. I think that's like that, that they were as excited to do it as I was. And we were able to sort of sit outside at a table on campus. And the conversation was so much about what, not just what, what had been happening over the last year, but how it was impacting the, the very place where we were sitting. And I think they were incredibly productive conversations with donors who, you know, were eager to be back on campus. And I think that's why, you know, we've seen a rise in law grads wanting to come back to homecoming, for example, in the fall, which is typically not a, a big event for us. But um, we've seen more people come back every year. And I think it's because, yeah, there's a real value in being here. Okay. So you, I mean, you, you're, you're, you're testing me here. Cause I've thought I've thought I, <laughs> before this conversation today, and I've got a, I've got one coming up that I know is going to be very pro remote worker uh, with mm. someone who's sort of on the other side of this conversation. And I, 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 I think I, <laughs> I wanted to think that I was sort of leaning towards the, the remote side of this argument, but you've got me wondering, okay. One of my critiques, Laura, that people hear me constantly talking about on the fundray on the on the podcast is this idea that fundraising is becoming too automated too it's always in my opinion it's become too shallow too automated too mechanical it doesn't feel real and so is is part of your argument that if we begin to sort of just all dis, disperse and go to these virtual places and we try to do it is is that part of the argument that it's just going to become more shallow and it's not going to feel genuine? It's not going to feel real. I mean, is that is that part of it? I think that certainly that it certainly could get to that point if we were totally remote. I think, you know, I think that there's ways to bring you know, sort of personalization into the remote fundraising space. Uh-huh, but I uh-huh. think you have to be very be very purposeful in it. And that means yeah. You know, you're bringing someone along to a Zoom that may be somebody that a donor wants to talk to. So like maybe you're bringing a professor with you yeah, or a student. Or, right. or yes. We've utilized that quite a bit in the remote atmosphere is to bring somebody that would that would be equally as inspiring as, as being on campus. Um, but I think that if you're strictly going to sort of this remote life by yourself, um, without much sort of inspiration to bring with you. I mean, as as entertaining and fun as I think I am, um, I also know that, you know, the donor understands why I'm there and what my purpose is. And I'm not going to inspire them nearly as much as something that really, truly connects them back to their experience. Is some of your, is some of your, um, willingness to advocate for 
quote unquote, coming back to the office also because you live in a big city and you are at Penn versus, for example, we had some, we had some, we had two women on the podcast two weeks ago that were, uh, uh, and by the time this broadcast, it'll be several weeks ago, um, that were working for a university that's in a much more remote area and their, you know, their development officers distribute across the country. And then I also think about two, two universities, two smaller institutions that I have, um, done some work with and they're in the most remote places in the world. And the biggest challenge they have, Laura, is they can't find talent to actually move to those places. I mean, is some of the reason that you can you can get away with advocating for the office is some of that reason because you are Penn and you are in Center City, Philadelphia? <laughs> definitely. Definitely. I, yeah. I can definitely see that. Yeah. I mean I think um, you know, it's certainly easier for a lot of us to get to campus because yes. a lot of us either live in the city or have easily accessible public transportation from out. Yes. I also think Penn is a unique urban campus in the sense that it, we really are, everything on campus really is within a 10-minute walk of each yeah. other. So, yeah. you know, being on campus makes it almost easier to have meetings with people than to do so remotely or yeah. to have off-the-cuff conversations with people because you can walk, you know, two minutes away to another building. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and I, but I do think that places like Penn right now who have been so forward about wanting people to return to the office are also struggling in sort of the, you know, finding talent that wants to do that. So I think, you know, the majority of the sort of mid-career folks don't are, are are really more interested in having a remote lifestyle. And, um, and there may be many reasons for that. So I haven't been, I, I have probably been, but so, you know, I, you, you and I live about a hundred miles apart and I haven't been to Philadelphia. I think I've been to Philadelphia once in the last 12 months, for example. Um, I mean, it's our, our development officers, help, help me understand this, our development officers who work in in or near Center City, Philadelphia, who are perhaps at Penn, who are at Wharton, who are perhaps at Drexel, at Temple, do they want to work from home? Let's say that let's say the pandemic goes away. So let's say just let's just say tomorrow it all of a sudden just went away. Right. We know that's not going to happen. But let's say it went away. Do they want to work from home? Because I thought, I thought, I thought in some cases, the reason why I lived, if I lived in a place like Center City, Philadelphia, or at least, you know, within, you know, arm shot of, you know, that's why I live there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the person's ind- individual situation. You know, I think yeah. we still have folks who are struggling with, you know, childcare issues, who are caring for, you know, elderly parents who may have gotten sick in the pandemic. Um, you know, and I think, I think we're also sort of dealing with the fact that the city had very high numbers for a little while. So I think that there's also just a general sort of fear of coming back yeah. to a place that is so populous. Yeah. Um so I think that there's a lot of different reasons why someone might not want to, but I, I think I would like to think and have, it, this sort of feels like my experience so far that, you know, fundraisers are such extroverted sort of type a folks that many of them yeah. do want to just, they just want to be around other people and being yeah. at the office yeah. is the easiest way to do that. Yeah. Um, 
So I, I have found that the majority of the fundraisers I know who live in the city are happy to be back in sort of a hybrid format. Um, it's the folks who live outside the city who are sort of navigating the public transportation snafu is that I think are struggling a little bit more. And it's resulted in a lot of people driving into work, which has caused its own set of problems. But I think, yeah, I think it's very individual. Okay. So if you're on the hiring man, so if you're a supervisor and a hiring manager, the conversation that we're having has to have at least entered your mind that now remote working, even if it's a partial remote working has got to have entered your mind at some point over the last 18 months that it's actually a useful tool to remedy some of this. Um, am, am I right? I mean, ha- have you thought about the idea that, hey, I've got to retire? I mean, I, I, I know, I know, I know, I know a, a leader in, you know, she's over at CHOP, for example. I think she's got like 40 development officers working for her. And I mean, you, I don't know how many you got working for you. I mean, some of these operations, if you need 40 development officers, and, and these development officers are, say, 28 to 35 years old, you're thinking of every tool in your toolbox to attract these people. And if being able to re- work remotely from home even twice a week or something has got to be a, a consideration, am I right? Definitely. And I think that, that that we do have that going for us at Penn. So, you know, we're in sort of a hybrid atmosphere at this yeah. point. Um, and I think, you know, I'm hiring for one, soon to be two positions. And, and I think that's definitely a, a bonus is to be able to say, you know, we're, we're hybrid, you can work from home two to three days a week. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think that makes onboarding from the management perspective a little bit more difficult. But we have certainly, I think, gotten over that hump, too. And we've gotten pretty good at being able to onboard people remotely um, with just sort of, you know, minimal in-office contacts. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's a real desire across all age groups at this point, you know, of course, again, depending on their personal situation, to just have flexibility generally um, in where they work and how. Yeah. Okay. So go back to, so let's go back to the example I gave you. So I, I had a boss that would literally, you know, the job required, I was a major gifts officer, 16 meetings a month, never asked for less, you know, you know, the job description, never asked yeah. for less than X. And, um, and, and, and literally I'd spend sometimes three to four nights a week on the road, but there was this, there was this, I don't even know if it was explicit, but there was certainly an implicit assumption that if you were on the road, say you flew out Sunday night or Monday morning and you came back Thursday, that you would show up to, you would, you would report to the office on Friday morning. I mean, isn't that, and part of the, one of the reasons I left that institution was it's it's that flexibility. It's the idea that I came in late Thursday night and I'm just not ready to get back and navigate that traffic. <laughs> you know, yeah. the DC at the time we were in DC, we're not ready to navigate that DC traffic first thing Friday morning. Um, I could have now, and, and and here's the other thing. I guess this is the other question we could sort of at the time, none of us, and this was 12, 13 years ago, none of us were using Zoom at the to the volume and with the level of uh uh effectiveness that we now know how to use it um i mean so it, it is part of that 
is part of what we're navigating right now not a not an issue of should we or should we not do remote work but should we just learn how to use the tools and afford ourselves the flexibility that we that, that some of these tools actually offer us yeah i mean i think that asking you to come in on a friday after four days in california having done that trip multiple right. times right we've all yeah he's, anybody's he's a just good cruel. developer who's done that right <laughs> it's yes, just mean yeah. um so <laughs> so i yeah i mean that's certainly not an expectation here in our office i think you know there's an understanding that um you know your recovery from an intense trip is work too. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I've spent many a Friday recovering from a red eye from California, <laughs> right, um, right, exactly. you know, answering emails, happy to do so from my home office, but um, yeah. not, not ready to present myself to the, the world uh, on a Friday morning. But I think, I mean, I think we've seen in the last decade or more, just how, you know, so much automation and and, and, you know, a move to technology that allows us to do our jobs from almost anywhere. Uh, and, and I think that's a benefit. I mean, I can remember my first job out of college was at a big white shoe law firm in New York where we were still, you know, reviewing documents on paper, sitting in rooms of like hundreds of boxes of just paper documents that were photocopied from people's Apple actual file cabinets. And that yeah. doesn't exist anymore. And, yeah. I, you know, that that job can now be done from a laptop anywhere. So yeah. I think we have the benefit now of being able to be a lot more mobile in our work. Um, and so we should be thinking of this as managers. We should be thinking this of this from the perspective of, um, you know, what value will the staff will this staff member get from being in person? And if yes. we can't figure out what that value is, we shouldn't be forcing them to come into the office. Yeah. Um, and and so for some positions, it might not ever be necessary for our research staff, for example, it's not really necessary for them to be here every day or, or even most days at all. Um, we have one re- research person who lives in North Carolina now and, and, right, you know, right. he doesn't need to be here. So I think it, it really depends on doing on what your capacity, sorry, what your position is on your team um, and what your duties are. But I, I think we have to look at it more as more from the perspective of, what does being in person do for a, for someone professionally versus like versus this feeling of you know you need to be here so that we can tell you're doing your work if that makes right. sense well i've thought about this and this is the i mean this is definitely leaning towards the idea of let's just come to the office i have thought about this on a number of occasions that there is a darker side to remote work and it is that we become that it becomes very dehumanizing because it becomes very metrics it becomes even all the more metrics driven based on you know you know how many more tracking systems for example are going to emerge because we're still working for control freak bosses who still don't have their heads wrapped around how fundraising works and so instead of just affording flexibility and doing the dance between working from home and working from the office and so forth and so forth. They literally start tracking, you know, how many times you punched into your laptop and how many phone calls you made and how many emails went out. And it just becomes this sort of, you you just become part of a machine. Um, 
you know what I'm getting at? I mean, it's just because because I think there's a I think there's a a, a fear. I think there's a, a a fear of that that is associated with coming back to the office, and I totally get that. And everybody's concerned about their health, and oh my gosh, you know, I totally get that. But then there ought to be you ought to balance that with the fear that how are you going to satisfy your boss's need for control? In some cases, these bosses I don't I don't want to I don't want to totally. I mean, hiring talent right now is hard enough. I, I don't want to totally. Um, lose all these bosses either. And some of these bosses do need some measure of control. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think that this issue predates the pandemic. So, you know, I think that the turn towards very data centric fundraising, um, you know, predates the pandemic. And I like to say that our program is data informed and not data (laughs) reliant. Right. Right. Um, And, and I think, We've seen that the sort of systematizing of what we do can be valuable in many ways. Um, you know, even if it's just something as simple as making sure that everybody's call reports are getting into your CRM, um, yes. but which is something like we've sort of started to systematize at at the law school. But um, as things like that, I think can you know can benefit from some systemization. But I think it's I, I th- and I think that this. Can- morale too. I mean, if you're not having FaceTime with a team, not having FaceTime with a boss, if you're solely on a computer all day, and then also being monitored on top of that, I mean, your sort of sense of value to a team, I think, and I I think that makes it really hard to be motivated to do the work that we do. Um, And so I think that's another value in sort of being able to come into the office where you don't feel like you're being tracked as much, I guess, as strange as that sounds. Um, but yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, 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 I definitely, I definitely think that's the darker side of all this. Hey, I mean, it's, it's one thing to be in the midst of the pandemic for the last 18 months and nobody could sort of figure these things out. So nobody was trying to track what their employees were doing, but if we lean into this too much and we insist upon it, I guess if, if we on the employee side insist upon this too much, you could have control freak bosses who literally are figuring out ways to, to um, uh, you know, monitor, to use your word, monitor what these development officers are doing. I remember, remember a couple of years ago, right after the book came out, I picked up on something that I had not written about in the book, and it was this notion of this culture of metrics. And I was talking to people in higher education who were saying to me, Jason, there's this missing piece that you didn't address in your book, and it's this I, this culture of metrics, and we've got these bosses who are just going, you know, driving us bonkers to get these metrics into the system, and then the system spits out metrics in all sorts of ways. I mean, there were metrics that I wasn't even familiar, wasn't even aware that institutions could sort of conjure up. Um, it occurs to me, Laura, that by working remotely isn't it all isn't it all the more likely that we would actually become more metrics driven than less you know and i would say that my team did become more metrics driven in the okay. pandemic but i approached it from a very different perspective my interest wasn't in tracking my team and sort of keeping tabs on them yeah my interest was in giving them a better map to sort of what 
would be productive in a new environment. So we had already started talking about this pre-pandemic. We wanted, uh, Penn is very like, in the past, Penn has been very uh, simple in their uh, fundraiser metrics. You do this many visits a year, you raise this much money, done. Um, Right, Right. I love it. I love it. (laughs) And so... But I found that my team was then spinning its wheels a little bit. So you would come home from a trip, you would log those visits, and then your concentration would completely move to getting the next set of visits so that you had, you know, you were meeting more of that metric. And I think I wanted to provide them more guidance in terms of the path, the the quality of the interactions that they needed to be having, not the quantity necessarily, they were going to get those, that number of visits, no matter what they did, because we're a very frontline based office. But I wanted our fundraisers to understand why they were doing it and why, you know, sometimes a donor needed one visit and sometimes a donor needed five. And so we, we went to a moves management based metric sure. system, which yeah, I think yeah. is less hard and fast and, and more, you know, did you do something to move the relationship along? Great. Right. Um, count, count that. <laughs> so, um, and I think it's been helpful in terms of, you know, sort of providing clearer expectations to fundraisers, but also allowing them to think a little bit more strategically and think ahead with their donors in terms of what their long-term cultivation strategy is going to be. And, you know, I, I think that's the problem with metrics is that if you're approaching it from a, from a desire to monitor your folks productivity and to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, it becomes burdensome. But if you're doing it from the perspective of I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to give you a sort of clearer understanding of, of the value of the work that you're doing then I think that they can be helpful. Um, but too many metrics can be too many metrics sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I can't, uh, before I let you go, because uh, I'm, I'm creeping up on my 45 minutes, but I can't resist. So I had a guest on here several months ago from the Naval Academy. And I'm interested to see if you all saw this in your metrics, because I'm, 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 I ride the fence on the metrics issue too. I, I, I want to be, I want to trust the development officer, development officer out in the field, but I also want to sort of, um, I want to know what the sort of the numbers can tell us. But one of the things he noticed, I'm interested to know if, if, if you all saw something like this. They were able to sort of track during the pandemic the rate, a rate of engagement that was about. So let me let me let me phrase this correctly. They saw approximately half. This is basically what he was sharing with me. They saw half of their donors who didn't want to engage, for whom they left alone. And then they saw a half of their donors that wanted to engage. And similarly, and, and then they raised very similar dollars that they had the year before. And so the, the, the metrics basically started telling them a story between the donors who actually wanted to be engaged versus didn't. Um, and by doing that, they were able to the kind of the the ending, the sort of the summary comment that he made uh, at the end of the conversation was the idea that we engaged with half as many donors and raised the same money. Did you guys see stuff like that where it's not to say that the other donors didn't give, but they didn't want to be bothered, you know, and, and we all know those donors. <laughs> we all know those donors and some of them are just going to write their check, but but what he was describing, Laura, 
and this is where I'm getting at with the question. You know, did you all engage during the pandemic with people who w- actually wanted to be engaged? Right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. I think, yeah, I think that's exactly why I really wanted us to go to this moves management idea because yeah. just trying to pump out 150 visits a year yes. right. wasn't productive. And we were seeing a lot of people because we needed to fill in visits for wherever we were going. We were seeing a lot of people who didn't want to see us and yes, right. didn't care. Um, and we were spending, you know, budgetary dollars and salary dollars on high level fundraisers for that work when we could be, you know, when our major gift officers who are getting paid the most in the office could be, um, you know, focusing their work on a smaller group of folks and seeing them more often or talking to them or emailing them or calling them and probably having more success. Um, And so one of the things we're doing right now is I just developed a position that just went up on our our job board for somebody whose job is basically to, it's not to go see the people who don't want to see us, but it's really to be an identifier and a qualifier so that the major gift officers are not spinning our wheels um, and we can focus on the donors who are engaged and then sort of get fed more by a qualifier who can sort of say, yeah, this person would probably benefit from a visit from you and the Dean, for example, but this person doesn't want to be seen by us. Um, So I'm hoping that it will sort of streamline the work that the major and principal gifts officers are doing. Um, And does that, and to sort of loop that back around, does that matter to be, what we're sort of getting at here as we wrap this up, we're sort of getting at the idea that, that as we're in this sort of period of change and transition and we're doing things a little differently in the world, sort of, we all got our feathers ruffled with the pandemic. Um, it is part of this to say that we're going to need those metrics in order to allow them to tell us a story that matters and is, is useful. Um, you know, we, 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 we might come out of this. Um, we might come out on the other side of this, you know, if we don't, I guess what I'm saying is if we don't track enough data, if we don't track enough. This is, this is the probably first time in a long time that I'm actually advocating for tracking information. Um, <laughs> if we don't track enough information, we're not going to be able to know what the story sort of tells us. Am I right? Um, we've got to get this yeah. information in the system. No, I think you're right. And I think, you know, a big reason why moves management was so important to me was that, We talk a lot at Penn about being a donor-centric fundraising program, and we are. You know, we are very donor-centric, but our our way of tracking that and strategizing around it um, and sort of creating expectations for our fundraisers around it was not. And so we needed that to be as reflective of the work that was facing outwards, too. Um, And I think that has really helped to get that story um, you know, into our records so that whoever ends up working with that person down the line um, is able to continue being as donor centric as we always have been with them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Laura, we lose our listeners at about 45 minutes and somebody may have an opinion on this. They may want to banter it out with you a little bit more. 
um, or they may want to uh, they, they they may want to come work for you. I don't know. One of the <laughs> they might want to move to Center City, Philadelphia. Um, if if uh, I'd be delighted to live in a downtown like that, but my wife wouldn't let me. So, um, <laughs> Laura, if they want to reach out to you and have a conversation, how would you suggest that they do that? Um, you can an email. I'm at tap. You can with two. Laura, it has certainly been a pleasure. You are always welcome back. Thanks for being my guest today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jason. This was great. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.